Okay, so we're in Acts 21. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. So let's read through that, and then we'll stop and pray. Remember that Acts chapter 20 was about Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. Okay, that's where it ends in chapter 20. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Lord, may you attend this word with your blessing and the opening up of our eyes and heart and will, Lord, to embrace it and to live by the principles we see in this passage, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this section of scripture, we find Paul traveling to Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, you're going to notice there's a real similarity a resemblance between Paul and Jesus here because Jesus traveled to Jerusalem and he traveled to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples knowing that he was going to be arrested and persecuted when he got there and that's exactly what's happening with Paul he's traveling with a group of his team members to Jerusalem knowing that when he arrives there he's going to be persecuted and he's going to suffer affliction and interesting, interestingly both Jesus and Paul refused to be persuaded not to go. Even though they knew the suffering that they were going, going to experience, they refused to be persuaded not to go up to Jerusalem. So in this section, Paul looks a lot like Jesus Christ, which is um, really flattering to Paul, I'm sure, to, be, to say, hey, you look like your Lord in this situation. But I, in this passage, this Acts 21, verses 1 to 14, I'm going to make it really simple this morning. I just want to bring out three principles that I see from the passage that we can take and we can apply to our lives. Three principles. The first one is this. We need to make Christian fellowship a priority. Now let me explain to you why I even see that in this passage. Notice in chapter 21, verse 1, 
says, when we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petara. Uh, chapter 21, verse 1 could be translated like the NIV does, when we had torn ourselves away from them. It, we, Paul had to tear himself away from these Ephesian elders that he loved. You know, this is not some aloof relationship that he had. This, they were, you've, have you ever heard of that movie, A Band of Brothers? There's a book by that name too. These guys that were in World War II, they were brothers all. I mean, that's how I see Paul and these elders. They were a band of brothers. Their, their hearts were knit together, and he had to tear himself away, knowing he'd never see them again. But anyway, he, he tears himself away. He gets on board a ship. He eventually comes to Tyre. Verse 3 says, When we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And look at verse 4. After looking up the disciples. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that they weren't waiting to receive Paul as soon as he got off the ship there in Tyre. He looked them up. He had to find where they were at. So Paul arrives in Tyre and he says, I'm going to find the Christians that live in this city. Where are they? And he finds them. And Paul could have said, you know, I have been working night and day, seven days a week for the, for the Lord for the last 20 years. I'm just going to take a break. I, I need a vacation. But instead of doing that, what does he do? He finds where the Christians are in this city, the city of Tyre, and he wants to meet with them, and he does that for seven days. Just, he's hanging out with them, probably doing some teaching, probably hearing their testimonies, probably trying just to impart some spiritual gift to them. So here's the apostle taking every advantage that he has to have Christian fellowship with the Christians that are in the city that he's in. That's what I'm seeing here. And just as a side note, it's kind of interesting to know that Paul offhandedly had something to do with the church that got started in Tyre. Because we read in Acts 11:19 that the disciples uh, had to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution connected in, in association with the stoning of Stephen. And when they fled because of persecution, some of them went down here to Phoenicia and they preached the gospel and a church was formed. Well, the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen had a lot to do with Paul. <laughs> he was behind a lot of that. Remember, he was, he was there and they were putting their cloaks at his feet. So, interestingly, he has an opportunity now to fellowship with the church that he indirectly had a hand in planting. He didn't do it directly, but it got started because of his persecution efforts of the church. I hope you're following me. That's a little... Uh, okay, and then notice verse 5. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, and kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. So try to get this picture in your mind. The wives and kids, little kids, bigger kids, all of these Christians there entire, they're going down to the beach. They kneel down on the sand and they pray together, just like Paul did when he left the elders. It says, he knelt down and prayed with them all. This is chapter 20, 36. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him. So here we find the same kind of situation, just this supernatural love that Paul and the... 
you know, I, Paul probably had never met these Christians before, right? I mean, he's, he, he hadn't been to Tyre. He had been ministering in Asia and all over the place. He comes to Tyre, it looks like, for the first time, and he finds these believers, and there's already that connection between him and these believers. So where they're, they're praying and they're embracing when he, when he leaves. I just find that really interesting, the strong bond that we find between believers here. And then this isn't the only time when Paul seeks out fellowship. Notice verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. So he does the same thing. He doesn't stay a week, but now he, he's, he knows he's only going to be in this city for one day. But he takes advantage of that situation to find the Christians that live there, and he spends time with them. It's almost as if it would have been unthinkable for Paul to pass through these cities without looking up the brethren and having fellowship with them. And then he comes to Caesarea in verse 8. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Instead of staying at a public inn, he stays with a member of the church. He wants to, he wants to sleep there and spend some time in his home. And this also takes place later on. Let me see if I can find it. It was Manasin. Oh, it's not coming to me. But there's another time we stayed in another person's home, and I thought it was right in this passage. So, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 40, we, we remember that Philip was the one who God used to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. He got converted. Philip baptized him. Then Philip was snatched away by the Holy Spirit. Apparently, he just sort of disappeared and found himself at Azotus, 20 miles away. And what's interesting is that it tells us in verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So Philip was an evangelist, and he would just go to one city, he'd find a, a gathering of people, and he would preach the gospel to them, and then he'd go to the next village or city, and he'd do the same thing, and he kept doing this along the coastline until he finally arrived at Caesarea, and apparently he liked Caesarea because he settled there. He stayed there and raised a family, and now he's got four virgin daughters who are prophetesses, and he himself is an evangelist, so it's a, it's a, a wonderful picture of a godly home where a man of God is raising Christian children to love the Lord, and they're, they're able to hear from the Lord and speak out prophecies. So it's beautiful. Now, <laughs> isn't that good? Oh, this is what I was looking for. Verse 15. After these days we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So again here, Paul, instead of staying in a public hotel, they called them inns in that day, he, he liked to stay with the brethren. If there was a choice, and he could, he would rather stay at your house than go to a public inn. So Paul wanted to be with Christians. That's the point. He, he, he's making a lot of effort here to make sure that he's hanging out with and spending time with other believers. 
And that's the application for us. Notice how much Paul desired the fellowship of other Christians. Whatever town he's in, he seeks them out. He chooses to to stay in their homes rather than someplace else. And when he leaves them, he kneels down and he prays with them. And sometimes they even weep when when he leaves them. And so ask yourself, do I have the same kind of a desire and commitment for Christian fellowship that I see when my brother Paul? How important is it to me that I'm spending time with other Christians? We all probably should talk about what fellowship even is, right? The, the Greek word's koinonia, and really the root of the word means to share, to share or to have something in common with. So to fellowship would mean that we're sharing all things. You're sharing hugs, prayers, scripture, material possessions, time, energy. You're, you're sharing your life in common with that other brother or sister. So two Sundays ago, when we were in Acts chapter 20, we noticed how important the word of God is in our sanctification in our growth and holiness. The word of God is of paramount importance. But in this passage, we're seeing how true it is that God uses Christian fellowship in our sanctification. Now, maybe you've thought about the word of God being important. Do you consider Christian fellowship to be also very important in your growth as a Christian? Let me just show you one verse from Hebrews that we recently went over in our morning devotions that stuck out to me. This is Hebrews 3. 12 and 13. The author says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what that tells me is that this isn't, he's not talking about, make sure you go to church and hear the preaching. (laughs) What he's saying is that You brothers and sisters that I'm writing to you, you need to take care that nobody falls away from the living God. And the way you do that is by encouraging each other day after day, as long as it is still called today. In other words, there's a sense of urgency that you've got to do this now. Don't wait for next year or next month. Be encouraging each other presently. Because if you do that, none will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Instead, they will persevere in their faith to the end. And so, like John Piper likes to say, um, perseverance is a community project. He has a sermon called that. Perseverance in faith is a community project. In other words, we as brothers and sisters have a great deal to do with helping each other get to heaven. You ever think about that? I think about that a lot with my wife, that my job is to help her get to heaven, and her job is to help me get to heaven. It's an oversimplification, but, but here, he, God has got a role for us to play in each other's lives. We ought not just think of ourselves, well, it's my spiritual life, you know, and I've got to make sure that I'm doing well. We're supposed to be thinking about the rest of the people that are within the church, our local church. What, how does God want to use you to help them grow in grace? That's why I love it when people on Sundays are quick to share from the word something that the Lord has has ministered to them because what they're doing is they're not sharing that for themselves. God has already ministered them from that word. They're sharing it for the rest of us. 
They want to bless us. So not only is the word of God essential for your sanctification, but so is Christian fellowship. So let's just think that through. Is fellowship with other brothers and sisters a priority in your life? Now we can have fellowship here, and we do, when we meet on a big meeting on Sunday, but it shouldn't only be limited to when the church meets for a a public meeting. You can have fellowship with other brothers and sisters throughout the week. You can do that by a phone call. You can do that by getting together in person, getting together and having coffee with them, just talking about how things are going. Uh, Like Jerome and I get together sometimes on Saturday mornings and we enjoy fellowship together. Uh, Recently, Jerome was challenging the church to find another family or person to have a meal with on at least a weekly basis. And so Debbie and I have been doing that with the Lankins and Myung whenever she can come. And it has been a source of blessing in my life. I can just say that very honestly. I have felt enriched personally and spiritually from those times that we have together. So I want you to consider if you're not having fellowship with other Christians, ask yourself, how can I do that? What could I do in my weekly schedule so that I could have more fellowship in my life? What could I do? And you could also ask yourself something like, well, do I only gather or do I only have fellowship with other Christians when it's convenient for me, when there's nothing better going on? You know, if if I can't go out to the lake and go on my boat or if I can't go to a ball game, well, I guess if there's nothing else happening, I'll go to church and fellowship with the brothers. Or are you making it a priority? This is important in my life. So, Be zealous for Christian fellowship. That's the idea. So that's the first idea. That's the first principle I want you to see from this chapter. The second one is this. We need to love and respect others with whom we disagree. Now, let me try to unpack that. Paul made a decision in this chapter to do something that the other brothers and sisters disagreed with him on. They told him that they, he didn't, they didn't think that he should go to Jerusalem. And Paul did it anyway. He doesn't fo- follow the counsel of the disciples in chapter 21.4, who told him that he shouldn't set foot in Jerusalem. It says, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Well, Paul did not heed their advice. He did it anyway. Not only that, in verse 12, he doesn't follow the counsel of the brethren in Caesarea who begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Notice verse 12. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now notice that. We, as well as the local residents, well, who's the we? Well, that would be Luke. He's part of the team, and also the, the other team members that are with Paul. So even, even the brothers and sisters that had been traveling with Paul were begging him not to go to Jerusalem, and also the local residents that live there in Caesarea, they're begging him not to go. And Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's a disagreement over what Paul should be doing. They said, you shouldn't go He says, I have to go. I must go. Now, I know this probably brings up a question in your mind. It did in me. In chapter 21, 
verse 4, where it says, they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So does that mean Paul deliberately disobeyed the Holy Spirit? No, because earlier the Spirit told him to go, that he was going to stand before, well, they didn't tell him to go, but that he was going to stand before the Roman Emperor. Well, yeah, in chapter 20, verse 22, he says, Behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So the Holy Spirit had been telling him, when you get to Jerusalem, bonds and afflictions await you. But he said, I was bound in the Spirit to go. In other words, he, he felt constrained by the Holy Spirit that he had to go, even though he knew this is what was going to happen when he got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, wow, is Paul deliberately disobeying? My conclusion is no, I don't think he was deliberately disobeying because I don't think the Holy Spirit was telling him not to go, even though that's what it sounds like in verse 4. I, I have some reasons why I, I've come to that conclusion. Let me, let me just give you those reasons. Earlier in Paul's ministry, when the Spirit told him not to speak the word in Asia, this is Acts 16, and not to go into Bithynia, Paul obeyed. He didn't go to those areas because the Spirit explicitly told him, don't go here, don't go there, and so Paul didn't go there. So I don't think the Holy Spirit told him in this situation, don't go to Jerusalem. I think what he told him is that if you go, this is what's going to happen to you. He was warning him of the afflictions that were to come. Um, also in Acts 19.21 and Acts 20.22, Paul says that he purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. It's constrained by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 23.1, Paul says that he had lived with a perfectly good conscience before God up to that day. Now, if he was deliberately disobeying the Lord's directives, he couldn't say, I have lived with a good conscience every day up until now. He couldn't say that. And in Acts 23.11, the Lord told Paul, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So in this statement, the Lord appears to Paul and says this to him, there's no hint of blame, there's no hint of, of condemnation for anything Paul had done, only of commendation. As you have witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So for those reasons, I disagree with the people that think Paul is out of the will of God. I think he's in the will of God. I think he's doing what God wants him to do. It's just that the Lord has warned him, there's coming some, some persecution and some suffering for you when you get to Jerusalem. I, I have a question. Okay. Um, so do you think it's possible that maybe um, when they were, when you said uh, they kept telling him, Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem, do you think the Spirit was letting them know what was going to happen and they were telling him not to? Exactly. Exactly. I think the Holy Spirit said, this is what will happen when you get there. And then they drew their own application, and their own application was wrong. In this case, I think the majority was wrong, and Paul was right. And, and the Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit could reveal something to us, and then we make a wrong application of it. Yeah. It's not, he's not going to contradict himself. Right. So, you know, they, they had to be. 
Right. Probably their own feelings. Like, yeah. no, God, yeah. I don't want this to happen. <laughs> don't go <laughs> ball. <laughs> yeah. He's telling me. No, yeah. he's telling well, me. Well, you, you remember how much they loved him, yeah. and they're weeping when they have to be parted from him. So don't go. We don't want you to die. But Paul says, I'm ready to die for the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Don't break my heart. But anyway, whoever was right and who was wrong is, isn't even the point here. The point is that their disagreement didn't cause them to break fellowship with each other. And I get that from, well, chapter 21, verse 4. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Well, did that cause them to break fellowship when Paul decided, I'm going anyway? I believe I'm supposed to go. It didn't, it didn't break fellowship because they went with him out of the city. They knelt down with him. They prayed with him. They said farewell to him. There was no breaking of fellowship over this. They still loved him and supported him and were going to pray for him, right? Um, and the same, we've, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, for seven days. And we find the same thing with Agabus's prophecy. Paul didn't follow the counsel of his team and the local residents, but rather than cutting Paul out of their lives because he disagreed with them on this, they said, the will of the Lord be done. In other words, this is a mystery. We don't understand how this is all going to work out, but the will of the Lord be done. And they still embraced Paul as a brother and as an apostle and as a friend. So what I'm seeing here is that disagreements that we have with other Christians shouldn't cause us to so easily cut ties with them, right? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be, in every church, there's going to be lots of different situations where we're going to have disagreements. We're human, right? We think differently than the other person thinks. Sometimes it'll be over doctrine. Sometimes it'll be over just situations. And people get so bent out of shape over decisions that are made in a church or that they're ready to leave at the first thing that they don't like. What I'm trying to encourage you to do is don't, don't do that. We can love and respect each other even though we disagree with each other. Do you think that you are right in everything that you believe? I, I, I'm sure there are things that I have wrong. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure that there are things like that. <laughs> I mean, if I knew what it was, I'd change my mind on it. <laughs> but we, we all are, we see in part. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? We see in a mirror dimly. We, we don't have full, perfect vision of all things. It'd be nice if we did, but we don't. Yeah, I think a perfect example is when Paul called out Peter at the dinner table for oh, you and yeah. And I mean, that would have... Uh, or not wanting to live the Gentiles, I mean, that, that's kind of a big doctrine thing. And, and, you know, yeah. I'm sure, you know, Peter being the head, I'm sure he was kind of like messing with pride a little bit, but, you know. Yeah. They still stuck together. That's right. They, they still, they didn't break fellowship over that. Even, that would be hard to take, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, very hard. Be rebuked very publicly. I'm not active this. Who's a, oh, yeah, uh, Timothy. Was it? No, it was Paul and they had that split. Oh, yeah, Barnabas. Barnabas. Oh, Barnabas, yeah. yeah. Because of Timothy, right? They had to separate. Yeah. But I, I think that was a temporary thing, and they they came, they came back together. Even Paul and John Mark, he said he's useful to me for service at the end of his life. So he didn't write him off either. Oh, it was Mark. That he yeah. Over, not Timothy, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was John Mark. So in, in your church, in your church here, if a decision is made that, that rankles you, don't just leave the church over it. 
I hope you would come and talk to whoever made the decision and say, this bothers me. Can we talk about it? And if, if your, your leaders are humble, they're, they're going to listen to you and they'll prayerfully consider it. They'll take it to the Lord. Is, is there some truth in what this person is saying? You know, that's, that'll be the question that they'll ask the Lord because we want to hear from God and we, we know that we don't, we're not the only ones that hear from God and God's people can hear from him. However, you might be in a church at some point where there's serious doctrinal error, heresy, leaders are denying the core doctrines of the Christian faith, um, or there may be people that are living in unrepentant sin. Those could be occasions where you should leave a church. Like if the church will not teach truth. Now I'm not talking about every point of the return of Jesus that you've got nailed down perfectly and if they deviate one tiny respect you're out of there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about core doctrines like the deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone. Um, what else would we say? We'll put in there. The necessity of holiness as evidence of regeneration. A big one that causes division too is Calvinism and Arminianism. Yeah. Which is, that's what I love about this church is, you know, even when certain people were here, we were, you know, it was able to be steady. You know, there wasn't too much conflict. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been in situations where there's a lot of conflict over that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm just trying to encourage you, make sure that if you were to leave a church, it's for serious issues. It's not some secondary minor thing that just bugs you. Uh, be willing to work through the issues. Be willing to talk to others with respect and love and humility. I mean, that's what the church needs is a heavy dose of humility and love and respect for one another. I mean, what, what problems we could solve if we just had the right attitude going into them, you know? And I think if we're quick to break fellowship with people on secondary issues, it means we're living according to the flesh rather than the spirit. I thought that was interesting, Jerome, what you said earlier about... Yeah, that's what I'm talking about right now, too. You, you and I are on the same spiritual level today, because yeah. twice now. But, um, yeah, we're talking about matters of indifference, not core essential issues, just matters of indifference. Okay, so that's the second principle I want you to consider this morning. If you're in a church body, and you believe God has led you there, stick it out. Work through the problems. Don't run. Okay, third... We need to courageously follow our convictions if those are biblical convictions. Now, this is what I see going on in Paul's life. In 21.13, he says, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul had a conviction that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem. And he, he refused to be deterred from that conviction. Do you have convictions about things? A conviction is something you've been convinced of by the truth of God. One of my, I'll just give you an example. One of my convictions is that I will not, um, I will not counsel a woman alone. 
I mean, I can do it over the phone, but I'm not going to get together personally all alone by myself and another woman. That's just one of my convictions. It doesn't mean that you have to have that same conviction, but that's mine. So do you have convictions about certain things? I'm sure you do. Informed by the Word of God, there are certain things that you know God wants you to do and things you know He does not want you to do. What we find about Jesus Christ was that he had the same conviction that Paul did. Uh, God had called him to go up to Jerusalem, and in his case it was to die. And in Isaiah 50 verse 7, there's a prophecy of Christ. It says, for the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. And in Luke 9.51, it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to be offered as a sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God against sin. But he did it anyway. He was determined to do it. It was a conviction that he was living out. Okay. So your convictions. Are you willing to do whatever is necessary to live by your convictions? whether that might mean suffering or hardship in your life. Sometimes it does mean that for us to live by our convictions. When you formed a biblical conviction, do you courageously follow it? Like Paul. Paul's giving us a good example here. He's courageously following and living out a conviction that he had from God. Here, here's just one application. If the Lord has convicted you that you must share the gospel with family members, do you hold back out of fear of rejection or do you follow that conviction and do it even though it's maybe uncomfortable and maybe painful? Do you follow that conviction? I just want to give you a couple of examples that might help you understand this whole thing. I remember a time, this was probably 1980, 1981, when a lot, my, my brothers and sisters started to come to Christ. And my sister did. My sister Rose. Hope she, I don't know if she was going to listen to this. <laughs> but anyway, she came to faith in Christ, but she continued to date a non-Christian that she had become attached to. And Debbie and I knew that was going to be a problem in her spiritual life. And so Debbie, on her own, decided that she needed to write her a letter. So she wrote my sister a letter and told her that you need to break off... If you're serious about following Jesus, you're going to have to break off this relationship with this boyfriend because the, the Bible talks about not being aligned believers and non-believers. And of course, my sister didn't take well to that letter. She didn't like that. She didn't like Debbie telling her that she should be, not be doing what she was doing. And so she told Debbie, hey, you need to stop this because if you keep butting into my life like this, you're going to break off our relationship. I'm not going to be able to, to deal with this. So you just need to stop. And so Debbie prayed about it, and she decided that she needed to do it one more time. <laughs> so she wrote her one more letter. And it, it ended up with, uh, for a time, temporarily, for them a severance in their relationship. But of course, God restored them later. But of course, Debbie was right. She was following the Word of God, and that my sister did need to, to break off that relationship. So there's one example. There's another one I remember when one of, my, one of my nieces asked me if I would officiate at her wedding. And this is like my favorite niece. 
She's just a sweetheart. I, I love her. To, <laughs> I can't say that? Okay, one of, one of my favorite nieces. <laughs> but she is just so sweet and so loving. And she was a Christian. The problem was she wanted to marry a non-Christian. And here am I. I've got biblical convictions, and one of my convictions is I will not marry a Christian to a non-Christian because that's, I'm, I'm out of the will of God if I'm doing that. Scripture told me that Christians are not to marry non-Christians. So what am I to do? I, I'm risking now being alienated from the rest of my family once they find out that Brian won't do it, you know, but I had to. And so I told her as gently as I could, I'm, I'm really sorry. I love you. I wish I could, but this would be out of the will of God for me to do this. And in fact, if he's not a Christian, you shouldn't even be marrying him. Well, she went ahead and did marry him. She got someone else to do the the service, and thankfully, he did come to Christ later on. So things are good now. But I'm just trying to explain, that, that was my angst in the midst of that situation. I've got a question now. Okay. You say Christians cannot marry non-Christians. Right. Well, my question is, can a Christian marry somebody that's a non-Christian that might become a Christian later? Is that okay too? No, no, you, because then you're taking a huge gamble and risk. You, you don't know if they're going to become a Christian. Gamble when you wake up in the morning. Yeah, but the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, you can, if, if you're a Christian and your spouse dies, you can remarry, but only in the Lord. That's it. And so it's, God has told us very clearly, Christians should not marry non-Christians. And it makes sense, because there will be dissension, Plus, when you have children, yeah. what's going to happen with the kids? Huge, huge yeah, it's just some wisdom. Okay, so consider the convictions God has given you. Sometimes it's going to be really hard to stick to those convictions. Are you willing to stick to them? I want to encourage you to stick to those convictions. Be willing to pay the price for what God has shown you he wants you to do or doesn't want you to do. So I thought we could end up this message today by having a discussion. I put together some, some discussion questions. They're related to these three areas that we've seen today. So number one, can you describe the benefit that you've experienced from Christian fellowship? When you think about fellowship in your life with other believers, what kind of benefit have you personally received from that? Could you describe that? Is anybody here who, who could do that? Love, acceptance. Uh... Okay, so here's another question. Can you think of a situation where you disagreed with another brother or sister over a secondary issue? And then the second part of that is, what was the outcome of that disagreement? Did you break fellowship or did you find a way to work things out? So can anyone think of a situation like that? Okay. Third question, can you think of a biblical conviction that God has given you that took courage for you to actually carry it out? Amen. Well, I hope you'll call to mind, the, let me just repeat these three principles we saw here and maybe think about them throughout the week. Um, the importance of Christian fellowship, like pursuing that actively in your life. Um, not breaking fellowship over an area of disagreement, as long as it's not a core issue. And then the third one is carrying out your biblical convictions even when it's hard and even when it's painful.
So those three ideas, you store those up in your mind and maybe meditate this week on those. And, and if the Lord pinpoints something in your life, you have, you have the Word of God to go back to. So, Lord, we do ask your blessing upon your Word today, that you would bring these things back to our remembrance when we need them, and that you would give us the fortitude and the, um, the conviction of mind to follow through on the things that you've shown us to be your will for our lives. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.